Chapter 4, Part 3 of The Greater Life and Work of Christ. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joel Graff. The Greater Life and Work of Christ by Alexander Patterson. Chapter 4, Part 3. It was not devotion to man, first of all, but to God, which produced that perfect self-abnegation, which showed itself in the self-forgetfulness and self-sacrifice of Jesus. He loved man because he loved God. He came to save man because it was the will of God. He gave himself for us because he had given himself to God. The highest subject of contemplation and the great object of affection is God the Father. This Jesus taught. He himself directed all attention to God. He presents himself as a manifestation of God and the way to God. His work is to bring man to peace with God, and ultimately to the very presence of God, and then to render up all to God the Father, that God may be all in all. Christ, in all his mediatorial work, must ever be viewed in this light. He does not present himself as the object of our worship, but directs us to worship God in his name. So the apostles address not Christ, but God the Father, in all the recorded prayers after Christ's ascension. There appears to be but one prayer addressed to Jesus, the closing words of John in the Apocalypse, Even so, come Lord Jesus, which is, however, more a response to the previous vocal message of Christ than a prayer. From this attitude of the soul to God, there necessarily follows the right feeling to man. In the personal exhibition of this, as has been seen, and as the world acknowledges, Jesus surpasses all. His teachings correspond. The maxims of the world's teachers abound in good sayings as to the treatment of others. Altruism is not a newly discovered virtue, nor exclusively a Christian one. The world has always loved its own and done much for the poor and commended benevolence. But the teachings of Jesus as to the treatment of others as far surpass the sayings of the world's sages as his example excels theirs. He overtops the highest and rises in the greatness of his self-sacrifice as far above the world's humanitarianism as in his unapproachable divinity above their deities. Socrates replied when asked how to treat one's friends, as we would desire they should bear themselves to us. Jesus extends this rule to all others as well as friends. Confucius taught, What you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. Seneca says, Expect from others what you do to others. Compare the rule of Jesus. As ye would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. The rule of Jesus is positive where that of Socrates is negative, and active where that of Seneca is merely passive. There is no such devotion to man as by those who have the spirit of Jesus. It surpasses all patriotic self-sacrifice, all humanitarian benevolence, all natural affection. It sinks the love of self, the strongest of human feelings, and leads the one fully possessed by it to say, For to me to live is Christ. The ministry of Jesus is divided into three periods of about a year each, marked respectively as the periods of obscurity, popularity, and opposition. About a year was required for his fame to spread, then followed the harvest time, and from this success came the jealousy of the Jews, which culminated in open opposition, ending only at the cross. The space given by the evangelists to these periods is significant. Matthew allots ten chapters to the last six months and eighteen to all the rest, say three years. 
Mark gives seven chapters to the last six months and nine to all the rest. Luke gives to these periods 14 and 10 chapters, respectively, and John gives 11 and 10 to them. Indeed, in the latter, the last 11 chapters are devoted to the last week of the life of Jesus and the events following. The lesson of this is apparent. This is the time of great importance to us for whom they wrote. We are therefore to follow Christ as he enters upon the great work for which he came, which transcends that for Israel and the church, and is to affect the world and all eternity. The last night of Jesus in earthly form saw the formal ending of all he came to do as Israel's Messiah, and the transfer of privileges to the church. Yet there is no break. The Passover fades into the Lord's Supper almost insensibly. We can scarcely tell where the account of the one ends and the other begins. In the whole we see Jehovah again preparing his people for a greater deliverance. The Passover was the Old Testament picture of Calvary. Jesus was the Lamb of God, chosen to give his blood for our sprinkling and his flesh for our eating. It is significant, as is said, that the Passover lamb was prepared for roasting by having a spit run through from head to tail and another from shoulder to shoulder, thus forming a cross. Every Passover lamb was crucified. The supper contains in itself the whole gospel, the whole truth as to the believer in the church, her work and life and hope of the future, its full depths of meaning have never been sounded. The feelings of Jesus as he approached the cross were those of perfect acquiescence in this divine appointment. There was the glad consciousness that all the long, vast accumulation of sin was to be atoned for by his offering on the cross. But we must not suppose that there was an absence of painful feelings in Jesus as he contemplated this great act. His state can be seen reflected in the faces of the twelve in the following passage. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed, and they that followed were afraid. And he took again the twelve, and began to tell them the things that were to happen unto him. This state is reflected in the Messianic Psalms. The shadow of the cross fell gradually upon the little band who followed him. His warnings of the coming tragedy are given with increasing distinctness. First, he tells them he is to suffer, then to die. Then he tells that he is to be betrayed, and adds, one of you shall betray me. And at the table, first privately to John, close to him at one side, by the sign of the sop, and at last to the traitor next to him on the other side. The walk out to Gethsemane was a silent one. The circumstances of the company, surrounded by enemies and now being watched by a traitor, called for the protection of secrecy. The dark, rough, and narrow streets were no place for conversation. The disciples were oppressed by the solemn events of the evening and his repeated warnings of approaching danger. What personal conflicts Jesus had with Satan after his first temptation are not recorded. They were not incessant, for Satan chooses his times and opportunities. In the ending of the account of the temptation, it is recorded that Satan departed from him for a season. That season had now expired. Now was Satan's hour and the power of darkness. Gethsemane was not a time of suffering only for Jesus. It was an ordeal of fierce temptation. The great purpose of Satan in the temptation of Jesus in Gethsemane was to prevent the cross or mar the work of Jesus at its close, as by the first temptation he would have stopped it at the beginning. The cross was the weapon Satan feared most of all. His empire was founded on sin and guilt, and the cross swept sin and guilt away. The foundation gone, his house must fall. 
Calvary, then, was Satan's object of fierce attack in Gethsemane. To prevent the great sacrifice was his purpose. He must have known the scope of the death of Jesus. He was willing to have him die, and stirred up Judas to betray him to the Jews, expecting them to kill him by their own hands. But if by this temptation he could prevent the cross, that would be better than all. His purposes often are at a variance, and one instrument is set against another. He little caring which plan succeeds. Gethsemane was also the testing of the victim for the Passover sacrifice. The lamb had to be without blemish. If fault or flaw was found, it was unfit for the sacred use. The great point on which the test was to be made was submission to the will of God, the original purpose referred to so often, and for which the whole history of man is being made. The lamb-like submission was the great essential for the Passover sacrifice. There were three elements in the trial in Gethsemane which made it terrible, the power of darkness, the hour, and the cup. It was, as he said to the band coming to apprehend him, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Satan was and is always present to defeat the purpose of God, but there are special marshallings of the forces of hell. The power of darkness was such. All that could be put forth of satanic energy was present then, the principalities, the powers, the world rulers of this darkness, the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Further, it was their hour. It was their set time to do their worst. God then gave them permission to try the Son of God as he had never been tried before. Lastly, there was the cup. This figure is used in Scripture to represent the portion of the sinner, the wine of the wrath of God, which is prepared unmixed in the cup of his anger. Jesus took the place of sinful man, guilty and doomed man, the worst of men deserving of this cup. He must therefore drink of their cup. He suffered guilty man's hunger and weariness and pain and sorrow. The attack was threefold, as the first temptation was. This points to the same threefold nature of the temptation, involving the three natures and three corresponding forms of temptation. There is indication, however, of a reverse order in the presentation. Satan would win the main issue, and failing in this, some lesser gain. The spiritual attack probably came first. It is to this phase of the ordeal the scripture refers. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. It does not seem credible that Satan could hope to overthrow Jesus here, after his life of trial and corresponding gain in all spiritual strength. But we must keep in mind that Jesus was fighting our battle under our conditions, that he lived and wrought entirely by the Holy Spirit, that the most holy are the most fiercely assaulted. Awful thoughts have come into the mind of the purest and best. Doubts as to their salvation have tormented the dearest of God's children. Suspicions as to God's goodness have found a way into the minds of the most trustful. There has come over the spirits of the most firm at times a doubt of everything. All they have known and been sure of has seemed untrue or uncertain. The most precious hopes of heaven have seemed a hollow sham. All the good one has done vanishes from sight. All the usual spiritual comforts are absent. Not a promise comes to mind with any power. All is dark and hopeless and awful. There comes a strange impulse to rush into some awful delusion, or to do some wicked thing, or even to abandon God and hope in heaven. This form of temptation comes later in life than that represented by the temptation in the wilderness. It comes after a trial of the life of the believer, 
often after much Christian work and great success. So Elijah was pressed, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. What makes this form of temptation so terrible is that these thoughts are so mingled in the mind that they seem to arise from within. The believer thinks he is conceiving all this himself and is plunging into apostasy of his own impulse and desire. Here is the difference between this and that kind represented by the temptation in the wilderness. That was objective, this subjective. That was temptation to outward acts, this to an inward state or act. Bunyan, in Grace Abounding, discloses his own temptation to such an inward act of renunciation of Christ and the dark years which followed. We can judge Jesus by ourselves, for he was tempted in all points as we are, and all these are points of temptation to believers. So it is no disparagement of the divine nature of Jesus to believe that Satan pressed all of these upon his mind with superhuman power and subtlety. Not a dark or blasphemous doubt was left unsuggested. But the depths of these experiences are in proportion to the nature in which they occur. Into a nature of infinite depth we can look, although we cannot fathom it. No mind can conceive of this trial of Jesus at the very verge of his great mediatorial work. Satan's purpose was to unfit him for it or prevent it in any way. This was the struggle of Gethsemane. The danger of some interference with or unfitness for his great work as Redeemer was the awful agony of Jesus in the darkness of that fearful conflict. His recourse is to prayer, but prayer does not always at first give relief. Satan may tremble when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees, but there is no evidence of it in Scripture, and he shows none in his conduct. On the other hand, he presses closest to the struggling, seeking one to prevent his access and to break his faith and to darken his view and to drive him from the place or exercise. Such times are battles. At such times, our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Jesus wrestled and struggled against the enshrouding darkness out of which there came not one ray of spiritual light. He comes out from the shadows of the place of prayer to the three chosen disciples to get from them some human sympathy and to be in their presence relieved for a few moments from the awful strain of the satanic conflict. He finds them asleep. From the beginning to the end, no human help was given him. It could not be otherwise. Jesus was to drink the cup and to suffer and die alone. No human voice can ever be raised to say, I helped the Son of God in the day of his atonement. Jesus returned alone to meet the second assault of Satan. The nature of this may be read in the passage, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. This is a soul state as distinguished from spiritual conflict. It is not confined to the believer or to spiritual beings. Our age has much of it. It affects its victims in forms of mental depression or prostration. One is conscious of its presence, yet powerless to resist. The mind is filled with strange thoughts which sweep through in a whirlwind of fury and leave one prostrated in weakness afterward. Mental collapse often follows, and the person is left unaccountable as to his actions. In such attacks, self-destruction is often suggested, and this is the inward history of many a suicide. Indeed, if the person is conscious of his state, either insanity or suicide appears to be the certain consequence of his distressing condition. 
there are other forms of peculiar oppression which are now coming to be understood by which one mind comes to control another and works awful consequences to the victim all this is possible to satan indeed comes from him he has used it many times with how much of all this or other kinds of oppression he now assaults jesus we cannot know only this we are sure of he was tempted in all points as we are and here is one of the most distressing forms of human affliction to incapacitate jesus from making a voluntary sacrifice of himself or to destroy its value as the act of one not in full possession of self-control would accomplish satan's object to prevent or mar the work of the cross jesus was in a state favorable to the inroads of such an attack there are in the records evidences of delicacy of temperament and nervous organization he was at the close of a long and exhausting work which had taxed nerves and brain and mind the exciting events of the past few days and the long hours with his disciples left him needing rest and quiet the approach of his crucifixion with all the attending trying events still further wrought upon him it was satan's hour to assault jesus he bears down upon jesus in his weakness with all the mysterious yet real power of mind over mind nerves and brain feel the awful pressure that great and powerful and inexpressively malignant being presses with all his mighty power upon that sinking nature we can well believe all hell is present to assist in that which will give them such a prize to so control jesus even for a time and have it recorded that the work of calvary was that of one not in his senses was a plan of surpassing subtlety jesus feels the awful pressure it was the human nature which was the subject of the second temptation reason seems tottering he feels as if in the mad whirl of insanity such a state cannot last long utter wreck seems the certain consequence of the fearful strain in the darkness of the hour it might have seemed as if it was god's will to let him fall a victim it was an awful thought he cries out in his agony against it begging to be spared such an awful blow yet under all is seen the immovable submission which is inwoven into his very nature and cannot change even in that awful vortex of mental agony he rises to seek again the group he brought to help him on this night of his dire distress they are stupid with sleep and scarcely wake to hear what he says to them so he leaves them to return to the final conflict this seems to have been an attack upon jesus's physical frame the final deliverance and the final attack is thus recorded who in the days of his flesh having offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and having been heard for his godly fear though he was a son yet learned obedience by the things which he suffered satan unable to sway jesus from his purpose or to incapacitate him for it now seeks to forestall the crucifixion by forcing him to a premature death in the garden it would not be a moral victory as in the second temptation or a spiritual victory as in the first but it would prevent the great atonement such was satan's thought and purpose nor was it wholly impossible from his standpoint he has the power of death jesus was physically exhausted his work had taxed all his not very great strength every miracle was a draft upon his energies there went virtue out of him we read of one healing but it was always so in a sense more real than we know himself took our infirmities 
and bear our diseases. The frequent weariness mentioned in the Gospels tell of wasting strength and receding powers. It is believed by competent medical authorities, who have made a study of the state of Jesus before and in his death, that he was during all his ministry suffering from a fatal and painful disease. The bloody sweat, the water flowing from the heart with blood, all point to abnormal conditions and to some vital derangement. In all this we see the opportunity of Satan. This, then, was his last fierce onslaught on Jesus. He attacks every vital organ of Jesus' body. The blood seemed to desert its accustomed channels, to return again with such unnatural force to the frail tissues which held it as to ooze in drops from the pores of the skin. The breath seemed to stop and leave him scarcely able to recover it. The damps of death were upon him. Jesus seemed dying and dying without the cross. It was an awful thought to him. It was the failure of all for which he had come. To reach the cross was the great desire of Jesus. For this he came, for this he was sent, for this a body was given him, for this he had prepared. Of this he had prophesied. On this depended all the past, while countless types awaited this fulfillment. The innumerable private and public sacrifices all were useless without this redemption. These temptations were doubtless cumulative. The first and second were still upon him, when the third and last falls with crushing force upon the sinking Jesus. Spirit, soul, and body are in the throes of the awful conflict. Humanly speaking, there can be no escape or recovery. He prayed in an agony of desire. It could not be possible God would permit this awful thing to happen. He cries, Let this cup pass from me. Yet, if it is the will of God so to humiliate him, if in God's infinite wisdom this can be and must be, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. The victory was won, but Jesus was left utterly exhausted. He had not strength enough to finish his work. We can see him lying prostrate for very weakness. He is thus helped. There appeared unto him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Enough strength is imparted to him to enable him to undergo the arrest and trial and scourging and smiting and to reach the cross and to finish his work. He returns to the disciples and together they step forward into the open to meet his approaching fate. The sting in the soul of Jesus in his last hour was that his death was to be brought about by the hand of one of his own. This also finds a place in the prediction mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. This Jesus quotes at the table. Soon after he hands the sop to Judas, who thus literally eats of Jesus' bread. Judas appears to have been on terms of special intimacy with Jesus. Mine own familiar friend is a term expressing something more than discipleship. He seems to have sat next to Jesus at the table, and to have enjoyed his confidence. Judas was not allowed to enter the course of treason unrebuked. Seven distinct warnings can be seen given by Jesus as to his approaching death, each successive announcement more definite than the preceding. Judas hears all, and must have known whom he meant when he said, One of you shall betray me. When all were asking, Lord, is it I? Judas also secretly, for the disciples did not know of the reason of his going out, asks, Lord, is it I? And Jesus responds also secretly, thou hast said. He hears and goes out on his awful errand, although the words of Jesus must have rung in his ears. Woe unto that man through whom the Son of Man is betrayed! 
good word for that man if he had not been born. It is difficult to understand the conduct of Judas, how one so near to Jesus and on such terms of special intimacy and so repeatedly and plainly warned could have deliberately sold his Lord is scarcely capable of explanation. It is true Satan entered into him, but there was, as is the case in all who fall, a preparation. In Judas this was of long development. We read, he was a thief and carried the bag. There appears to have been a special purpose in Judas's mind for the sum he received for the betrayal of Jesus. The end of his guilty act in life reveals the secret. Now this man obtained a field with the reward of his iniquity, and falling headlong he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the dwellers of Jerusalem, insomuch that in their language that field was called a keldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be made desolate, and let no man dwell therein. The fact of his buying this place, its character, and his purpose in it are all declared here. It was a sightly place, overlooking from its precipitous location the surrounding country, perhaps the city of Jerusalem, close to which it was situated. He intended it for a habitation, as indicated in the psalm, Let his habitation be made desolate. He had bought it either by bargaining for it or by having paid part for it. The thirty pieces of silver were required to finish paying for it, and were so applied after his death. He had set his heart on this place. He has it in full possession except for thirty pieces of silver. His stealings have gone into it. His conscience is blunted to right and wrong. At this juncture he is approached by Satan. It is intimated to him that he can make money by assisting to secure Jesus. He perhaps is told he might as well make it as anyone else. If he does not, someone else will. Perhaps he reasons Jesus is able to save himself and will doubtless do so. Jesus' popularity has waned. He is a suspected man. Some say beside himself. It is easy to disbelieve in an unpopular religion or person. Judas has lost faith in Jesus. He knows his integrity but everybody doubts his claims. All these reasonings pass through his mind as he deliberates this thing of sin. To deliberate here is to be lost. He seeks the enemies of Jesus and sells his Lord and Master. The traitor goes out to his self-chosen task. He knew the place, for Jesus often resorted thither with his disciples. A band of men is given to him. He places himself at their head. He guides them accurately to the garden. Many a time he had accompanied Jesus thither. Jesus advances to meet him. Judas salutes him with the kiss of friendship. Jesus replies, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? It was the manner of the betrayal which hurt the heart of Jesus. They had often exchanged this customary salutation of love. It was the fatal act for Judas. All else was but preparatory to this and might have been repented of. Jesus was betrayed, and Judas damned by that kiss. Jesus chides the people who have no grievance against him for their coming with spears and staves, as if he were a thief, reminding them they could have taken him any time in the temple. He rebukes the hasty act of Peter in drawing his sword and smiting the servant, and heals the wound. Then they lead him away. Judas is confounded at seeing Jesus thus taken and bound. He must have expected Jesus to save himself as before. He is conscience-stricken. He rushes to those who paid the money to him, flings it down with expressions of intense remorse, 
rushes out to his coveted possession, fastens a rope around his neck, casts himself over the precipice, the rope breaks, and he is crushed by the fall. The place is counted a curse thenceforth, and is used for the burial of strangers. The story of the sufferings and death of Jesus have caught the attention and touched the heart of the world. No one can read the narrative and not be at least silent from respect. He was led, or rather dragged about from place to place, as silent and submissive, and as helpless, so far as physical strength or resistance was concerned, as the lamb to which he is compared. While waiting for the morning and the meeting of the council, he stands, bound and silent. It is there occurs the incident in which Peter figures so disgracefully. He is near enough to Jesus for recognition. What a comfort he could have been, and what immortality of glory he would have won by even a word of comfort addressed to Jesus, or even by faithful acknowledgment and silent sympathy. But even this is denied Jesus. He must bear it all alone. At length the day comes, and the trial and all its tortures of body and mind. His strength was exhausted by his night of struggle and watching. His pale face was stained with the bloody sweat. He stood helpless before his captors, who were hungry for his blood. To all the jeering, he answers not a word. Jesus was brought successively before Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod, Pilate again, and at last is presented to the people. In each, every right and precedent were violated. Jesus was found guilty on two charges, and for these he was condemned to death. These were that he claimed to be the Son of God and the King of Israel. For the first he was condemned by the Jewish council, and the last was the official and legal accusation hung on the cross by the Roman governor Pilate. Christ admitted both charges. He was condemned and treated accordingly. He was kept bound, was smitten on the face, the hair plucked from his cheeks. He was arrayed in scarlet and a crown of thorns placed upon his head. He was hooted and derided by the soldiery, and the angry crowd cried fiercely, Crucify him, and asked the release of a murderer in his place. All this being over, and the necessary authority given by Pilate, he is led away to execution. It was no uncommon scene in Jerusalem. The usual crowd gathered, but there was an unusual fierceness in their yelling. There were some present who were of importance, and not usually at such scenes. They were the foes of Jesus, going to make sure he was crucified, and to gloat over his disgrace and sufferings. The procession files down the street and out of the gate. We may picture the scene. It was led probably by two of the soldiers, then one of the malefactors bearing his cross, Jesus bearing his cross, then the second malefactor, and then the other two soldiers. A shout tells the forward soldiers something has happened. They halt and look back. Jesus has fallen. The heavy cross has overtaxed his failing strength, and he lies prostrate on the ground. With a curse at the prisoner, one of them pulls the cross away, and then roughly drags him to his feet. He stands unsteady a moment. The cross is laid upon a stranger who happens to pass, and the procession moves forward again. A woman's voice is heard weeping and bewailing Jesus. He addresses her a word of comfort. The place is reached. It is the common scene of such executions. The cross is laid upon the ground. Jesus stretched upon it. He speaks. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, is his prayer. Nails are driven through each hand and foot. Then it is lifted, bearing up his body. The end is placed in a hole. One soldier guides it to its place, and the others steady it. They press the earth firm about it. 
the inscription is placed over his head, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The thieves are also crucified. The soldiers wipe the perspiration from their faces and sit down to rest. The victim's clothes are their perquisites, and these they now divide among themselves. One of the garments is a woven one. It cannot be divided, so they cast lots for it. There is now nothing more to do, so they sit and watch. In the crowd there are many who know of his power. They have seen him raise the dead. Why should he not deliver himself now, they ask? There is some expectancy that he will do so, but after some time passes and he does not, all conclude that he is not able to do so. They now begin to jeer and call upon him to come down from the cross. The malefactors, who at first called upon him to deliver himself and them, finding he does not do so, turn and rail at him. One, however, afterward repents and rebukes the other, and turning to Jesus says, Lord, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. To him Jesus replies, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. He was the first of the blood-washed throng. The last act of Jesus, the ruling passion strong in death, was the saving of this poor sinner. He commends his mother to John, who takes her immediately away to his home, thus sparing her the agonizing spectacle further. There is a small prophecy yet unfulfilled. It was written in the Messianic psalm, In my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So Jesus cried, I thirst. A sponge dipped in vinegar is lifted to his lips. Of this he tastes. All is complete. He calls aloud, It is finished. It is high noon. A great darkness gathers over the sky. The people are terrified, and most leave the place. No human eye rests upon the dying Christ. Then comes to him an agony he did not expect. The agony of Gethsemane was awful, but this far exceeds it. There entered into this something Jesus had never suffered before. What it was is seen in his cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Heretofore Jesus had the constant presence of the Father. In the eternal past, in creation, in the life on earth, in all the conflicts, even in Gethsemane, God was with him. Now God leaves him to die alone. It was necessary. It was the portion of the sinner's cup which Christ was draining to the dregs. This was the agony of the cross. To be separated from the Father, to cease to feel his presence, to realize that his face was averted, was the bitterness of Christ's death. It was the last stroke. It came at the ninth hour. He repeats the words of the psalm, Into thy hands I commit my spirit, and breathes out his life, his last and highest act of perfect submission to God and faith in him. As Jesus died, the earth shook, the rocks were rent, and many of the dead rose. The veil of the temple was rent in twain, and the darkness rolled away. At sundown the soldiers put the crucified thieves to death. They pierced the side of Jesus, and there flowed out blood and water. The earth received the contents of his heart and arteries and veins. The blood of Jesus was shed literally on earth, and its soil received it. Next in sacredness to the custody of the infant Jesus was the care of his lifeless body. To another Joseph it was committed. The two Josephs represent the extremes of society, the one a carpenter, the other a counselor and a man of wealth. He used his influence as such to obtain the body of Jesus. Another counselor, Nicodemus, helped him. It was a hasty burial, owing to the approach of the Sabbath. In Joseph's family tomb, not as yet occupied, Jesus was laid. 
the Jews secured a guard and sealed the sepulchre. All was over. Jesus was dead and buried. Man and Satan had done their worst. Reading such a story for the first time, one would conclude upon his guilt without further evidence. We would say that one so universally condemned by friend and foe, and by all the constituted authorities, must be very wicked. We in this day of familiarity with the gospel story have lost our feelings of horror at the knowledge that this was not only an innocent man, as proved by all these trials, but that this was the holiest man who ever lived on earth. That he spent his whole life doing good, and saved thousands from disease, and comforted thousands more. That he only desired to be permitted to continue all this indefinitely and extend it to all the earth. Besides all that, he was the legal king of Israel, and entitled to the humble allegiance of every one of those who so derided him. He was their Messiah, for whom they had long looked, and on whom their deliverance as a nation depended. More still, he was the Son of God. All this he substantiated by proofs of every kind, scripture, miracles, and witnesses. This was an awful crime, the wickedest act ever done on this or any other world. It must be asked, who was responsible? It was begun by one of Jesus' own followers, who went to the enemies of Jesus and offered to betray him. Jesus laid the blame on all the apostolic band. One of you shall betray me. They followed this by all forsaking him in his hour of need, and one with oaths denied him before his enemies. Not a soul of them ever lifted a voice in his defense. Jesus was condemned to death by Israel. It was their animosity which hunted him out and finally brought him to the cross. Israel can never escape the stigma of having crucified their Messiah. Last of all, Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Pilate represented Rome, and Rome ruled the world. The whole world, then, is guilty of the death of Jesus. The Church, Israel, and the world crucified Jesus. This is the view from man's standpoint. It must, however, be regarded from above and from Jesus' own personal action and purpose. Everywhere in Scripture God is represented as sending and giving Jesus, and He is coming in response to the will of God. He expressly declared His death to be voluntary. Therefore doth the Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one taketh it away from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment received I from my Father. Not all the agencies could have caused Jesus' death without his own consent. The sufferings and death of Jesus affected himself also. Though he were a son, yet learnt he obedience by the things which he suffered. It became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth, and they who are sanctified, are all of one. The course traveled by Jesus, and every believing soul, is the same. Jesus, therefore, for his own sake, endured the cross. All the discipline any soul endures of suffering necessary to bring it into the condition fit for fellowship with God, Jesus also passed through. The state and place of the Spirit of Jesus during the time between his death and resurrection is intimated by his promise to the believing malefactor. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Paradise is the place where the believer is after death. There the dying beggar went. Here, then, was Jesus awaiting his resurrection as all his people are still in this happy place. He thus follows our path in this also. 
It is said of the saints in paradise that they rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Rest surely Jesus needed after the fearful struggle. He was not yet in his eternal state. If the spirits of the saints need and can experience rest, so could he who is walking their path and entering into all their needs and changes and experiences. Jesus no doubt also entered into the enjoyment of the sweet fellowship of the saints, pictured by the attitude of the beggar reclining by the side of Abraham and enjoying whatever is represented by the table which is necessary to the figure used here. Jesus also no doubt told the saints of the accomplishment of the work of the cross and the approaching completion of it in his resurrection. Paradise is not, however, the highest place of the believer. It is simply where the saints are gathering and awaiting the completed church, when in one company all will enter into the highest and fullest glory. So this was not the exaltation of Jesus. That could not occur until he rose from the dead and ascended to the Father. Both human enemies and friends were asleep, neither expecting his resurrection. It was an event in which the inhabitants of the unseen worlds were the only active and interested spectators. In heaven, the resurrection of Jesus was eagerly looked for, not as a doubtful thing or a critical event, for in their minds, knowing him as they did and having him in spirit with them, they knew he was as sure to become reunited to that earthly body as that he was the Son of God. But it was longed for by them. It was the victory over death they wanted to see. It was the induction of their Lord in his eternal state in which he was to become possessed of an immortal human body, which he was to wear forever, and in which he was to rule in glory over them and all. Although neither the church nor the world understood or realized it, that first Lord's Day was the day of crisis in the affairs of eternity and of intensest interest to both heaven and hell. The one side full of faith and the other full of apprehension, all were watching the outcome of that day. We do not know what Satan did to endeavor to prevent the resurrection of Jesus. He who contended with the archangel for the body of Moses, we may be sure struggled with all the energy of his mighty power to prevent the resurrection of Jesus. The rising of Jesus threatened his supreme authority over man by death. Hitherto all had fallen before him. End of chapter 4 Part 3